We are in the middle of a series called Created, Discovering What You Were Made For. And we're looking at the, bit, the book of Genesis to answer five of life's most, in question, most important questions. Questions like, where did I come from? Do I have value? Do I have purpose? What went wrong with the world? And is there hope? The first week we looked at where did I come from? And God tells us in the book of Genesis that God created all things, including us. He created us from nothing by the power of his word with order. And then we looked, do we have value? And God says, yes, you have great value. Every person has great value because they're created in God's image. They're created very good and they're created for each other, for relationship. The third week we asked, what is my purpose? And God tells us that our purpose is to reflect his image that we reflect the righteousness of God for the glory of God. And then two weeks ago, we started this sort of three-week sub-series on what went wrong. And we're spending three weeks on the question, what went wrong? Because the Bible puts a lot of effort and time and words into describing what went wrong and why the world is so messed up. The first week, we looked at the story of the fall, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And we also looked last week at the guilt of the fall. This week, we're going to look at the curse of the fall. The curse of the fall. Curse is a word that we don't use a whole lot uh, today unless you curse at someone, right? And so I just want to briefly give a definition for curse. And there's many out there, but here's one of them. Curse is a calling to bring pain upon someone or something. A calling to bring pain upon someone or something. Now, I was thinking, what is an example of a curse? Because we don't exactly have these unless you're thinking voodoo or stuff like that. And finally, it struck me, the curse of the Bambino. The curse of the Bambino. Some of you may be familiar with this, but Babe Ruth was a famous baseball player called the Bambino. And in 1919, between the season of 1919 and 1920, he was, he was traded from the Red Sox, which was a very successful franchise who had won the first World Series and four more World Series since then. And he was traded to this lowly podunk team called the Yankees, who had almost no wins, was a horrible franchise, and he was traded to them. And as he was traded... The Red Sox declined, and they did not win a World Series for decades. But then the Yankees took off and became one of the most prolific franchises in American sports history. And so the curse of the Bambino is that, was that the Red Sox would never again win a World Series. We'll come back and finish that story in a little bit later. But the superstitious people declared that the curse of the Bambino was a result of the, Red, of the Red Sox trading Babe Ruth. Today, we're going to look that God actually curses the world. God pronounces a curse on the world, but not an innocent world. A world that deserves a curse. A world that has fallen from God, that has sinned and rebelled against God. And it's a result of our sin that these curses Come, If you would open up to Genesis chapter 3, if you're in the Red Bible, I believe it's page 3, if I'm not mistaken. And let me just catch you up on this story. Many of you are familiar with this story, but 
God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden and he commands Adam. He says, you may eat from any tree in the whole garden, any tree that you want except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat from this one tree, you will surely die. And Satan comes along dressed in a serpent and deceives the woman, starts asking questions of God, asking the goodness of God. Is God really prohibiting you from life to the fullest? Is God prohibiting you from what is happiness and joy? And so he starts sowing doubt. And then the woman and the man take of the fruit and they eat and they rebel against God. And that is our parents' first act of sin. And with it comes all of these curses. They've opened up this Pandora box, if you will. And so that's where we pick up the story. So read with me, if you would, Galatians 3. We'll start in verse, excuse me, thank you, Genesis chapter 3. Is that the first time I said it, or did I say it a few times? All right. We did Galatians last time. Genesis chapter 3. We like books that start with the letter G. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 19. Genesis three thirteen. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman... He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read your word, we acknowledge that it is very good, God. And even though we often don't see it as good, even though we read very difficult things, they're necessary for us to know, God. You tell us of our fallenness, of our brokenness, of our sin, that we might reach out to a glorious and wonderful Redeemer. Lord, we pray that as we study the curses of the fall, the consequences of the fall, the, the horrific damage of the fall, that it would break our hearts and that we would turn to you as a glorious and wonderful God of grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see that the effects of the fall, the fall being man's fall from the righteous standing they had before God, their sin before God, the effects of the fall are completely devastating on the world at the time of Adam and Eve, but all the way to today. And in some ways, it's getting even worse. And so even if you don't believe in this, you still live in a fallen world, a broken world where there's so much suffering and pain. Galatians 3.10, and I do mean Galatians this time. 
Galatians 3.10 actually talks about how all of us are cursed because of our sin. It says this, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law and do them. And so God says you are cursed if you are not completely obedient to the word of God, if you're not completely obedient to God's commands. And as we read the Bible, it becomes very clear that none of us are obedient to God at least not fully and completely, even though we might be a good person compared to other people, compared to God's righteous, perfect, holy commands, we fall far short and that there is a curse that comes over us because we disobey God's commands. And so as we look at this passage, we see that it really applies to us today. And we're going to look at three curses that God gives. And he doesn't always use the word curse, but he, he puts forth this, this, um, this initiative of pain in our life. And it might seem that God would be mean or horrible for doing it, but we will see that it's actually a gift of God's grace. And so there is a curse on the serpent, there's a curse on the woman, and there's a curse on the man, the order in which they disobeyed and rebelled against God. And so let's first look at the serpent's curse in verse 14 and 15. If you remember in Genesis 3 verse 1, God says of the serpent that the serpent is more crafty than any other creature in the garden. Now, God says that the serpent is more cursed. Look with me in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, why does God curse Satan? God curses Satan because Satan deceived the woman, deceived the man into eating the forbidden fruit, into rebelling against God. Satan continues his work today in convincing us that God does not have our best in mind, and so we need to rebel against God. We need to do things that God calls us not to do because that's where joy is. That's where happiness is. And he breaks Adam and Eve's relationship with God. He brings shame over them. He brings guilt over them. And he brings death over them. And so God pronounces this curse on the serpent, on Satan. We're going to cover two of the curses today. And the third one we'll talk about next week. But the first is crawling. And I won't spend a whole lot of time with this. But God is kind of saying, eat my dust. Right? You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust. You will forever be a road bump. You're going to be low. You're going to be looking up at all, all, the, all your prey. You're going to be hiding from them. And so he sends them down on the belly. I have often wondered, what did the serpent look like before the fall? I have no idea. But now he's on his belly. So crawling is one of the curses. The other is enmity, which literally just means hatred. That there will be hatred between Satan and the woman. If you remember in the garden... Satan actually became friends with the woman, wooed her, convinced her, hey, God's not really your friend, I am. Go eat that fruit. And God says, now there will be hatred between you and the woman, between her offspring and between your offspring. There's a quote from a movie called The Usual Suspects. I've never seen it, but I don't think it's a family-friendly film. Um, And the quote says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. You know, Satan is actively at work. He hates God. He hates the works of God. He hates the people of God. 
And the greatest trick that he pulls off is to convince us that he doesn't really exist at all. When we read scripture, it becomes very clear that he does exist and we need to be prepared. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so Satan is always attacking the people of God. There's this constant enmity, this hatred between God's people and between Satan. I went to the University of Missouri, as many of you know. Uh, Mizzou is the name of the school. And we have two teams that we always root for. Mizzou people root for Mizzou, and we root for whoever plays KU. Those are the two teams that we always root for. Because KU is a team that we are bred to have enmity with. We are, they're a school that we're taught to hate. And I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying it's okay. But it's reality. That there's this hatred between the two schools. You know, you see it probably with the Packers and the Vikings or the Badgers and Ohio State or whoever it might be, right? You see this even on the TV with all the TV ads. You see enmity with with the political campaigns. I don't know about you, but I am so sick of seeing political campaigns on TV. But all you hear is just slandering, 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 enmity, hatred. This is what Satan does towards the people of God, but he does it in a very crafty, very subtle way that he might be off our radar. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 talks more about the devil, about Satan and what he's doing. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in strength, in the strength of his might, being God's might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this serpent, uh, excuse me, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so our battle is not against other people. Our battle is not against one another. Our battle is against Satan. And there's this enemy and enmity and hatred between the people of God and between Satan. And so how do we fight this battle? And I'm not, I'm going to kind of read, Scripture lays it out very clearly. But first we have to acknowledge Satan, that he does exist, that he hates God, that he hates God's people. We need to acknowledge that and we need to hate Satan. But finally, we have to run to God. We have to put on the full armor of God. You know, this is a passage, which we'll read here, that's often used for children's Sunday schools. But it's written to the church. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Not for just children, but for adults. He says, this is how you defend yourself against Satan. It, it continues from that verse that we just read. Ephesians 6 14 through 18 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by, all, by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so God says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put hatred between you and between Satan, but I'm also going to give you something to win this battle. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you the truth. I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you the spirit. He says, come to me. Come to my power and win. 
And so Satan's curse includes crawling. It includes enmity, hatred between man and woman. Next we see the woman's curse. God pronounces a curse on Eve for eating the forbidden fruit. And the curse will strike at the distinctive of what it means to be a woman. The curse strikes at something that no man can fully understand, as you will see. Read with me in verse 16. It says, To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. This is in pregnancy, the discomfort, the pains, the sciatic nerves, the the nausea, the uncomfortableness. All of this is a result of the curse of the fall. In pain you shall bring forth children. The birthing process, right? I don't think I need to provide illustrations or argue this. I think you all understand why epidural is a good thing. But this is part of the curse of the fall. Pregnancy, birth, pain and childbearing. Something that is uniquely womanly and wonderful and glorious, but now brought with frustration, brought with pain. Secondly, he says that you'll have pain in marriage. That there will be disharmony in marriage. God created the marriage with harmony, with order. Now, I know that this is probably really controversial just in today's modern society, but Scripture is very clear that God created the home with order. That when you have a husband and a wife, that there is an order to that relationship. That the man is called to be the head of the household in a wonderful, righteous, loving, glorious way. He talks about this. Uh, he talks about what happens when this order gets distorted. That the consequence of the fall is that this order will be distorted. Look with me again in verse 16. It says, Your desire shall be for your husband. What does this word desire mean? Your desire should be for your husband. Is this sexual? Is this emotional? What, what is this desire? Well, there's a lot of kind of debate about what this word desire means, but something that's really helpful in the Bible is when you see a word, see how else that word is used throughout the rest of the Bible. And this word desire is really only used one time throughout the rest of the writings of Moses, and it's just one chapter later in Genesis 4-7. It says, And if you do, do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over. And so, Basically, what God is telling, I believe he's telling Abel this, that sin will rule, try to rule over you, but you must rule over sin. And so when we apply that back to Genesis 3, and I know this is confusing, but when we apply it back to Genesis 3, God is saying that the wife's desire will be to rule over her husband, will to have headship over him. And God says, this is not a good thing. He says, I've created the marriage relationship with order. Verse 16 goes on with this. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So more or less, God is saying that there will be a power struggle in your marriage. Each will want to be the head. Each will want to have the power. Each will want to have the keys to the car. There's a woman named Susan Fall who talks about this passage, and she puts it in these terms. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both 
the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he he must master her if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, struggle, tyranny, and domination. Now I think that as we look at this quote and as we look at this passage you might think, man, this is really archaic. Haven't we progressed past this in which women are equal to men? And what's amazing about the Bible is that God says, absolutely, women are equally valuable to God. Women are glorious, amazing creatures. He even puts a name on them that he calls himself, which is a helper. But he says, I have a place for everyone in this created order. The way I like to think of it is it's kind of like a tiebreaker. There has to be a tiebreaker in your relationship. And so when the husband and wife are sorting through life or trying to figure things out, they're talking through things, they're praying through things, they're trying to figure things out, but they still don't agree. How do you decide what you do? How do you decide which path you go? And the Bible says, the man. It's not that he's always right. But God calls us to follow this order, and he says it's beautiful and wonder, and we'll explain that a little bit more as we go. But what God calls us, calls women to do, is to support their husband as the head of the family. And this doesn't mean being a doormat, doesn't mean not vocalizing, doesn't mean talking, doesn't mean sharing, doesn't mean loving, doesn't mean collaborating, but it means to support her husband in the way he leads the family, lovingly, with joy. There's an illustration that is also very helpful for me in thinking about this. I've never flown an airplane, but I know that there's a pilot and a co-pilot, right? There's a pilot and the co-pilot. The pilot steers the plane. The co-pilot is a vital part of steering that plane. The co-pilot talks and shares. The, the co-pilot shares their, their opinions, what they think they should do, but it's ultimately up to the pilot to land the plane. It's ultimately up to the pilot to steer that plane. You know, that's the way God pictures marriage, is that while there is this great, wonderful, glorious relationship between the husband and wife, ultimately the direction of the family lies on the husband. And this is to be a beautiful and wonderful thing. And so husbands, the calling for us would be this, that we would be men that our wives would want to follow. We would be men that our wives would want to support. Ephesians 5, 24 through 26 talks about this. This is found really throughout the scriptures, and it's a glorious and wonderful and beautiful thing. Ephesians 5, 24 through 26 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husband, you shall love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing her, with the water. And so there's this calling that wives would support their husbands, support their headship, but that men would love wives like Christ loves them, that men would love them sacrificially, that the men would not think of their own best interests, but that they would think of their wife's best interests, that the men would sacrifice their life, that they would learn to deny themselves, deny the opportunity to go and just veg out on the couch to go and listen and talk to their wife, to help with the kids, to love their family well. And so this is a beautiful order that God created. And although we do both of these things, 
with fallenness and brokenness, it is still a good order that God is redeeming in us. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And so you see the woman's curse includes both her pain in pregnancy, but also pain in marriage as they fight for the headship of that family. Someone's going to be head and they fight for it. Finally, we look at the man's curse. And it's in verse 17 through 19. And we look at why does God curse man? And again, it's because he eats of the forbidden fruit. But there's more to that. It's actually connected to the curse of the woman. Verse 17 says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. So he's saying, because you did not exercise headship, because you did not say to your wife, hey, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to eat of that fruit. There's actually a book put out by a man named Larry Crabb called The Silence of Adam. Adam was this passive figure saying, okay, Eve, whatever you want to do, that's fine. We'll go that direction. And it led them into the fall. And all these curses came upon them. And because of that, because of Adam's silence, because of Adam's passivity, these curses come out. One is pain in working the ground, and the other is pain in returning to the ground. But as we look at these, something that I just really want to point out that God put on my heart is that as we look at the TV today, as we look at TV shows, what you see over and over and over and over and over again is a husband that is passive, a husband that is absent, a husband that is a dimwit, to be honest with you. And a wife who knows what she's doing and who's taking over the home. And what God is calling us to do here is to be an active participant in the home. A man who loves his family, who leads his family closer to Jesus. But it's not easy. And so we see these curses. First, there's pain in working the ground. Genesis 3.17 continues, it said, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And so work is something given to man. It's something that is good. It's given to man and woman. But now God says, while you do this good thing, while you work, there will be thorns, there will be thistles, there will be paper jams, there will be ink cartridge outages, right? There will be people in your workplace that won't stop talking to you. There will be people in your workplace who won't talk to you right? There will be pain. There will be frustration. And this is all the effects of the fall. It goes on um, with the curse in verse 19. It says, there will also be pain because we will return to the ground. It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Simply God says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be born, You're going to work and you're going to die. This is the fate for all of us. There is a 100% chance that you will die. And this is a consequence of the fall. Thinking back to the curse of the Bambino, there was a street sign in Boston on a very popular road. And on that street sign said, reverse curve. Well, some vandals came out and they spray painted it. And they spray painted on this sign, reverse the curse. Reverse the curse. And the officials liked it so much that they actually left the sign up. Until 2004. In 2004, the Red Sox, who were back three games to nothing, to the Yankees, 
of all teams, came back and won the American League Championship and then swept the St. Louis Cardinals to win the World Series. The curse had been reversed. The curse had been reversed. What we see as we read throughout the rest of Scripture is that the curse has been reversed for us. That Jesus Christ has reversed the curse by becoming a curse for us. Looking back at the Galatians 3 passage, it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's us. We are cursed. But then this promise comes right after it. In verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus takes the curse that we deserve by our sin and he takes it upon himself. As they take the thorns of the curse, they bang them into his head. He's taking on the curse of the fall. As he goes to the cross and he dies a death that is a result of the fall, he's taking our curse upon himself. And so Jesus is not only reversing the curse, but Jesus became the curse. And when he rose from the dead, Jesus triumphed over the curse. And so in our life, you may say, wait, I'm still feeling the effects of the fall. I don't understand how there's victory in Christ, how Christ has reversed the curse. Christ is doing this slowly in all of us. Christ is restoring to us work. Christ is restoring to us parenting, restoring to us marriage. He is rewriting things. He is reversing the curse in all of our lives. And there will be a day when Christ returns that the cross will be completely defeated and we will live in victory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to reverse the curse, God. And that you are doing it in all of our lives, God. There is brokenness and devastation. And yet you come to us and you love us and you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That the curse might be reversed in us, God. And we know that all who trust in Christ are assured of your pardon, assured of your forgiveness, assured of your grace, assured that the curse of the fall is being and will be reversed through the cross of Jesus Christ. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.